Hey, let me give you a quick health day update uh, since y'all been uh, praying for me, and I appreciate that. Uh, obviously, you can hear in my voice I'm not 100% yet, but uh, since I haven't been 100% since I was 26, I'm feeling pretty good. You know, the doctors have ruled out any of the most serious and scary things, uh, which is is nice, and have divided my uh, the diagnosis into two different uh, problems. One is that I've been uh, fighting a virus or some kind of infection for probably a couple months now. I just thought I was uh, getting old or lazy, and instead it was that. And then the other thing, which is tied to my voice, is what doctors are calling COVID lung, which I think is just made up. And uh, they just said that the aligning of my lungs may have changed because of COVID, making me more susceptible to you know, things that I wasn't as much to before. So I appreciate your prayers, especially for my voice this morning. I have uh, this service and next service to hold it together. So uh, I appreciate your prayers for me. I'm going to pray for us now, and we're going to launch right into the Word. Uh, You can have your Bibles ready to open to uh, Luke chapter 3. Let's pray. Uh, Father, though I don't have much of a voice this morning, Lord, I do pray that I would be just that, simply a voice. Uh, Lord, that you would speak through me, that you would hide me behind the cross, uh, that there would be no thought of the preacher, but just a thought of the Savior. Lord, that uh, he would be the one who receives any honor, any glory, any thanksgiving, Uh, for this message and for your eternal and holy word. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So recently, I did a a really deep dive, a study uh, into kind of the spiritual climate of Judea during the time between the Testaments, uh, the Old and the New Testament. As you know, if you've been a believer for any amount of time or uh, you're a real Bible study person, the, the Old Testament ends with a promise in the book of Malachi that God will send His messenger to prepare the way of God as He arrives on the scene. In fact, we read in Malachi 3 that the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to His temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, He is coming. And following the book of Malachi, there are over 400 years of prophetic silence for the nation of Israel. And over the course of those years, the Jewish people splintered into different factions each of them dealing with their kind of national fall from greatness in very different ways. So that by the beginning of the first century, the people of Israel had divided into kind of two broad camps that I would call those who lived in anticipation and those who lived in indifference. You see, some anticipated because of the promises of the Old Testament, some anticipated a deliverer who would come and free them from the shackles of Rome. Others anticipated a revitalized kingdom for Israel, yet they gave little attention to the promise of the king. Others anticipated God's day of judgment, 
And so they retreated into the wilderness and spent their time in strict spiritual disciplines. And then still others anticipated their own return to national greatness by playing political games and grabbing as much power as they could. However, for for much of Israel, for many in Israel in the early years of the first century, the promise of a Messiah, the promise of a great kingdom and a great blessing were only met by indifference because they were tired. They were tired of waiting. They were tired of being disappointed. Like they thought, you know what, this is just the way things are. And I guess we have to make the best of it. Like they had given up hope. They had stopped looking up for their deliverance. And instead, they kept their eyes turned down and just did what had to be done. I mean, think about it. It had already been 2,000 years since that promise made to Abraham on that hillside. The promise of a kingdom and a land and a people and a blessing for all the nations. And so they were just indifferent to the promises of God. You see, that was the spiritual climate, the mood of the nation of Israel around 38 AD. And then everything changed. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iteria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Ananias, I'm sorry, of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. So after 400 years of waiting, good news had arrived. The word of God came to John in the wilderness. Like I love this passage and I love how Luke frames it. Like Luke gives us like six historical markers. Like he anchors this event, the preaching of John the Baptist. He anchors this event in time, in history, in reality. He's saying, hey, this happened. Like it happened just a few years ago. It was the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius, which is between 28 and 30 AD. I mean, that is some historical precision on the part of Luke. Especially when Mark just writes, John appeared. Like that's how... Mark, in his classic brevity, takes it. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. John appeared when? Well, ask Luke, right? And then Matthew simply records, in those days. What days? Well, you know, the whole Tiberius thing and Lysanias and Herod and those guys, right? I mean, Luke has the details, but in those days... John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. My favorite is John the disciple 
who in his gospel introduces John the Baptist this way, there was a man sent from God. Is that not the greatest title ever? Like to be a man sent from God. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. You see, John was the last of the Old Testament prophets. Like he serves as a link, a bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament. He has one foot in the old and one foot in the new. Like between him are the covenants of law and the covenants of grace. And he spends 30 years in preparation for a ministry, for a mission that lasts maybe six months. 30 years of preparation for this mission that God had sent him to accomplish. And what was his mission? Simply to point to Jesus. That's it. Like his whole job was to be in the wilderness calling the nation of Israel to repentance and pointing to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so let's get back to Luke chapter 3. It says in verse 3 that he, John, went into all the region around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. Like John's message was simple. Repent. For the kingdom of God is at hand. Get your house in order because the king is coming. In fact, he's right at the door. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah, the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. You see, that's all John was. Like his whole purpose in life was simply to be a voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make His paths straight. Every valley shall be filled. And every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall become straight. And the rough places shall become level ways. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. How in the world could John accomplish that? Like he's not an engineer, he's a preacher. So how did he make straight paths and fill in valleys and level mountains and build smooth roads? See, John's purpose was not to prepare roads, but to prepare a people ready to receive their king to remove all obstacles by calling them to repentance. Repent is John's message. Repent. Remove any obstacles in the path of the king. Repent. Turn all your attention and your complete allegiance and your all of your affection back to God. Repent and recognize that the kingdom of God is right at the door but you better be ready for it. Repent, because God is about to do something new. And the only people who will recognize it are the ones who are already looking for it. So get your house in order. 
or you might just miss it. Repent. So what is repentance? In Scripture, repentance is a radical change of heart, a radical change of mind that results in a radical change in the direction of your life. I love how Charles Spurgeon defines it. He says, repentance is a discovery of the evil of sin, a mourning that we have committed it, a resolution to forsake it. It is, in fact, a change of mind of a very deep and practical character which makes the man love what he once hated and hate what he once loved. Do you remember when that happened to you? Like, do you remember when the light came on and you saw, maybe even for the very first time, the true evil of sin? Like that it's like cancer. It's like acid. It destroys everything around it. Do you remember when God moved in your heart in such a way that for the very first time you hated that thing that you once loved and loved that one who you had hated? See, I think a, a great way to illustrate it is through this little chart here. Like there was a time in my life I was just kind of going along with very limited knowledge about God or knowledge about me. Like I wasn't a church person, I didn't grow up in a Christian home, but then through the reading of Scripture, like God opened up my mind and what I saw for the very first time was God. Like in His holiness, in His character, high and exalted. I saw that God had a standard and the standard was His own character. And in seeing God, I saw myself for the very first time. Like my sin, my pride, my arrogance and wickedness. Like I saw clearly what I was like and I saw this great chasm between me and God that nothing could fill. And that is when, for the very first time, the cross made sense. Because I couldn't pull myself up by my bootstrap because I, I couldn't work my way to God. God provided a way on the cross. The Son of God died in my place as my substitute. And in that moment, I called on the name of the Lord and I was saved. J.I. Packer writes about repentance this way. Repentance means turning from as much as you know of your sin to give as much as you know of yourself to as much as you know of your God. And as our knowledge grows at these three points, so our practice of repentance has to be enlarged. Like, oh, are you experiencing Repentance as a lifestyle, as an ongoing thing in your life, as you grow in your knowledge of God, like you repent of what you see in your own life that falls short of His glory. Repentance is the doorway to spiritual formation. 
Like Pastor Trey, the last two messages he's preached as our pastor over spiritual formation has talked about this whole idea of being formed into the image of Christ. Repentance is the doorway of spiritual formation. Like it's a perfect description of how we change. In fact, it looks like this. Like when I first came to know of God's character, how much did I know of this character? Just a little bit. Just enough to feel really small. Just enough to be terrified. And when I first came to Christ, how much did I know of my sin? <laughs> well, certainly not how deep it is entrenched into my very character, to my bones. But as I have grown as a Christian, the more I grow in the knowledge of God, the more I grow in my knowledge of my need for grace and the larger the cross seems. I don't try to fill in the gap with good works or church attendance or I will try better. Instead, I cling to the cross. Like I approach God in the same way I did that first moment I knew Him in repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as the only one who could take away my sin. Okay, back to the story. Verse 7. And He, John, said therefore to the crowds that came out to be baptized by Him, You brood of vipers. How to win friends and influence people, right? You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Now, Matthew adds a little bit of clarity at this point. He says that mixed in the crowd were Pharisees and Sadducees who were coming to examine and test John. And these words, these harsh words are directed at them. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Guys, this is a radical message because he's calling not the Gentiles, not the wicked but the religious leadership of his day to repentance. Don't let spiritual pride lead you to your downfall. And he says this, even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. And every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit through repentance is cut down and thrown into the fire. Listen, the axe... <laughs> of God's judgment is already in motion. It's already swinging. Judgment is about to fall. So you better get your house in order. Take this message seriously. And of course, the Pharisees and Sadducees did not, but the crowds did. They asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics, is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Be generous with what God has given you. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. 
Like let go of greed. And then greed will let go of you. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation and be content with your wages. Be fair and be content. Stop comparing yourself to others. Stop worrying about what God is telling them. Instead, focus on what God is telling you. And of course, in all of these, he's talking about money. But this is not another sermon about money. That was last week. However, John says that the way we hold on to material things, especially in light of the needs of others, is an indicator of our spiritual health. Like I wonder if John were here today, What instructions might he give to those who are spiritual seekers, who are asking for guidance? Well, I think certainly he would say, repent. Repent. Like, don't let anything get in the way of or take the place of Christ in your life. Don't let anyone or anything except him sit on the throne of your heart. Don't be like the rich young ruler who came to Jesus seeking eternal life but went away sorrowful because he had many possessions that had a grip on his heart as he had a grip on them. And as a response to this, the people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. And John answered them all. He says, I baptize you with water. But one who is more powerful than I will come. The straps of whose sandals I am unworthy to tie. Now in reading that this week, I just thought, man, note John's reverence for his cousin Like as he thinks about his cousin Jesus, he thinks he is so high and so exalted. I am unworthy to even remove the sandal from his feet, the lowest of the low jobs for a servant in that day. Like I have noticed over the last 40 years of being a Christian, a real loss of a sense of sacredness a real loss of reverence among believers, but not just believers. A loss of the sacred, a loss of reverence by churches. Like I am, I am convinced that when people who aren't followers of Christ visit our churches, they are there in search of God. Like they're coming with this expectation, with this hope of somehow being on holy ground and having to take off their shoes. They're coming with a longing for reverence, for sacredness. They're coming with a longing for transcendence. And instead, we just give them a show. We just give them a TED talk with a Bible verse. Like churches and believers 
have lost their sense of the holiness, the sacredness, the glory of God. Like John says, you know what? I'll take off your shoes and I'll serve you and I'll take off your shoes and I'll serve you. But him, I am unworthy to touch his sandal. There were things that he reserved for Christ alone. What do you reserve for Christ alone? Like you'll see in my notes in just a moment that whenever I have a personal pronoun tied to the person of God or Christ or the Spirit, I always capitalize it. I don't do that with mine. I don't do that with yours. But I do that with the one and only holy God. What do you hold sacred? He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. My cousin Jesus will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in His hand to clear His threshing floor and to gather the wheat into His barn and He will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Guys, there is a tidal wave of the wrath of God that is sweeping over the nations. And you need to take that seriously. And then it concludes verse 18. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news. Like, I don't know about you, but that does not sound like good news, does it, right? His winnowing fork is in his hand. Like he's going to bring in the harvest, placing the wheat in the barn and the rest he throws in an unquenchable fire. Like, how is this good news? Please understand the gospel. Good news doesn't mean just say the prayer. The gospel doesn't mean just get your eternal life insurance policy. It doesn't mean a get out of hell free card. Like, how is this this good news? Because John is saying, this doesn't have to be your destiny. You can change. Like you can come into the presence of God and see Him for who He is and see yourself for who you are and you can repent. Repentance is the doorway of spiritual formation. So walk through that door. In fact, true change only comes from true repentance. The first time I read anything about repentance was when I was a young man as a believer reading mere Christianity for the very first time where C.S. Lewis writes this. He says this process of surrender is what Christians call repentance. It is something much harder than merely eating humble pie. It means unlearning all the self-conceit and self-will that we have been training ourselves into for thousands of years. Repentance is a description, a description of what going back to God is like. If you ask God to take you back without it, you are really asking Him to let you go back without going back. It cannot happen. Guys, repentance and faith Go hand in hand. You cannot place your faith in a God that you are committed to turn your back on. 
So what is true repentance? What is John talking about? Well, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 7, he says, Godly grief, godly sorrow produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces only death. And so Paul contrasts godly sorrow from worldly sorrow, and he says you'll know it by its fruit. For example, for see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourself innocent in the matter. So what does true repentance look like? It looks like that. It looks like earnestness, a genuineness to be right with God. It looks like eagerness, this serious swiftness to get right with God. No greater priority. See, it's seen in what indignation. You see, godly sorrow leads to an anger at sin, not simply at the consequences of sin, but sin itself. Like true repentance hates sin, but false repentance hates only the consequences of sin. True repentance does not regret the loss of the sin that it is forsaking, but false repentance does. True repentance looks forward to God, to forgiveness, but false repentance looks backwards like Lot's wife at what you're having to leave. What indignation, what fear. Godly sorrow restores a holy reverence for the name and fame of Christ. It becomes the chief concern of your heart once again. False repentance is only outward. It's only a show so that people might see it, but true repentance is both inward and outward. What fear, what longing, godly sorrow leads the repentant person to seek forgiveness. They realize the high cost of their sin and the impact it has made on them and others. And they see the full trail of their departure from Christ. So they don't just confess the event of sin that got them in trouble, but they see where their heart first turned off the path. Like this may explain for you why sometimes you pray and ask for forgiveness, and you know in your head that you've been forgiven, but you say to yourself, but I don't feel forgiven. Well, that may be because you confess the event, but not the heart attitude, not the full trail or path where you swerved away from God. You confess that you were caught by your spouse. And that's the sin you confess. You were caught by your parents. You confess what was exposed, what you were found out about, but you don't confess the full trail. Like what was going on in King David's heart and mind when he stood on that rooftop at the time where the kings go to war? 
When did he walk away from Yahweh? What longing, what zeal. Godly sorrow leads to an eagerness to resolve the problem of sin and move forward. That's why David prays in Psalm 51, after his confession of sin, after that longing for restoration with God, he says, then I will teach sinners your ways. Lord, forgive me. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and then I will teach sinners your ways. You see, true repentance inclines your heart to submission to Christ. What zeal and finally what punishment. See, godly sorrow flows from the heart of someone who is willing to accept the consequences of sin. True repentance never says to God, that's not fair. But it responds like David in Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgression, for I know my sin and my iniquity is always before me against you. And you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are righteous when you judge and you're true when you speak. God, whatever you do to me is fair. And whatever you say about me is right. So what would John say if he were here today? What would he say to us? You see, it's been 2,000 years since the promise was made by Jesus of a kingdom and a king and his return. Are you living in anticipation of that or indifference to it? Like, are you tired of waiting? Tired of being disappointed? Have you given up hope? Have you stopped looking up for your deliverance? Have you placed your hope in that which can never deliver? Elections and people and resources. Do you, Christian, need to get your house in order? Like, what's one step that you can take this fall to produce fruit in keeping with repentance? You see, many in Israel were living like practical atheists, giving lip service to God, but living as if He doesn't exist. Are you? Like, what's one step that you can take to reignite a heart of reverence for Christ and the things of God? Many in Israel had lost their sense of the sacred, of the holy. Have you? What is one step that you can take this fall to steer your hope in the direction of the coming king? Many in Israel had lost their hope in the promise of God. Have you? Like, where are you placing your hope in an upcoming election or in a returning king? Like, we are a nation in need of revival. May it begin with us. Get your house in order because the king is right at the door. Let's pray. Kind Lord Jesus, I praise you continually for permission to approach your throne of grace. 
and to spread my wants and desires before you. I am not worthy of your blessings and mercies, for I am gone far from original righteousness. My depraved nature reveals itself in disobedience and rebellion. My early days revealed in me discontent, pride, envy, revenge. Remember not the sins of my youth, nor the multiplied transgressions of later years. My failure to improve time and talents, my abuse of mercies and means, my wasted Sabbaths, my perverted seasons of grace, my long neglect of your great salvation, my disregard of the friend of sinners. While I confess my guilt, help me feel it deeply with self-abhorrence and self-despair, yet to remember that there is hope in you and to see the Lamb that takes away sin. Through Him may I return to you, listen to you, trust in you, delight in your law, obey you, be upheld by you. Preserve my understanding from error, my affections from love of idols, my lips from speaking guile, my conduct from stain of vice, my character from the appearance of evil, that I may be harmless, blameless, above reproach, useful, light-giving, prudent, zealous for your glory and the good of others. Through Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. Let's stand together. And church, as you stand, you are on holy ground. As we approach in some mysterious way the presence of Christ at this table of communion, I would invite you as the band plays to come and get your elements. Take them to your seat and we'll take them together. his body see decay he would not let the Messiah rot in a tomb but he would raise him from the dead but he did let the body of Christ see lashings that opened his flesh he let his body see spikes that went through hands and feet he let his body see a spear that pierced his side and his heart this is his body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of him. C.S. Lewis writes that in this life, perhaps the holiest thing we ever hold in our hands is the sacrament. This is the blood of Christ poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of him. You know, church, there's, there's nothing in your life that you try to hide in the dark that God can't pull into the light. But there's nothing that if you bring it into the light and through con confession and repentance, give it to the Lord, 
that he won't throw into the deepest sea and remember it no more. Like God's grace and forgiveness is always greater than any sin in your life. Like there's nothing that you can bring to him that he is not ready and anxious to forgive. And so I encourage you to walk through that doorway of repentance into life change. I don't know if we have anybody in this service that is in our Go Asia team. I'm not sure. Any of the great? There we go. All right. All right. Hey, this is Jonathan, and uh, he is on our uh, Go Asia team along like first hour we had Angie and Lazarus and we also have Helen and Rob Gibson who are leading the team along with some others and so we want to pray for them as we leave they're leaving on Friday to do evangelism and uh, to help strengthen the church and build the church there and so I'd ask as, as uh, if there's any pastors or elders in this room to come on up and uh, with me lay hands on Jonathan and uh, you know church family I'd ask that you kind of symbolically lift your hands toward him as we pray uh, God's blessing on this team. God, that is what we ask, Lord, beyond the abilities of Jonathan or Angie or Lazarus or Helen or Rob or anyone else, that you would show yourself strong. God, that you would fill them with your spirit that you would use them powerfully, that you would fill in any gaps, any need they have, any gifting that they have as they go from house to house and village to village. Lord, may they find that man or woman of peace. Lord, may you build your church and may countless believers be brought into your family because your grace is always greater than all our sin. God bless this brother in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.